It's time now for Illinois Innovators, spotlighting the leaders in research, technology, and entrepreneurship from the engineering at Illinois community. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. On April 10th, astronomers announced that they had captured the first images of a black hole through the Event Horizon Telescope, or EHT, a planet-scale array of eight ground-based radio telescopes forged through international collaboration. The black hole itself is at the center of the M87 galaxy in the Virgo galaxy cluster. University of Illinois physics professor Charles Gammy is a member of the EHT Science Council and co-led a group which provided the theoretical analysis. The team developed sophisticated computer code to make running and analyzing the simulations as efficient as possible. Professor Gammy joins us to discuss the significance of the discovery, the role the Illinois team played in the project, and what's next. Uh, Professor Gammy, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's been uh, about a month uh, since this uh, big announcement. Uh, what's your life been like over the last month? Well, I've, I've done a lot of interviews, which is not something that we usually do as sort of uh, retiring theoretical astrophysics professors at U of I. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've given a lot of talks, uh, and it's been a pleasure to showcase our research at institutions around the country. So let's just take back to, to the, uh, the black hole itself, just so people uh, that uh, uh, obviously that was a big story uh, a month ago and it continues to be. What, what is so significant of the fact that uh, we now have uh, this photo uh, of a black hole? Yeah, so I think part of it is just that seeing is believing. And uh, there's a big difference from thinking that there's a black hole in the middle of this particular galaxy and actually seeing it there as a dark spot in the middle of our image. Uh, scientifically, there's a, a whole range of implications of this result, which is what we spent years working out. Um, uh, and those have to do with whether general relativity is correct. Uh, they have to do with uh, how the, the powerful jet that emerges from the, the center of this galaxy is generated uh, and whether the black hole has spin or not. So we've seen the image. Can you describe uh, if we're looking at the image, um, what we're seeing. Yeah, um, so maybe uh, some of your listeners haven't seen the image. Uh, it's, it's basically a, a round orange donut or, or bagel. Uh, in fact, I, I got a lot of uh, emails with uh, memes that morph a bagel into, uh, into the image of M87. Uh, so what we're really seeing, of course, is not the black hole. Uh, black holes are black. They, they emit no light, or at least a negligible amount of light. Uh, so what we're seeing is uh, radiation emitted from a really, really hot gas that surrounds the black hole. So it's at a temperature of around 10 billion or 100 billion Kelvin. And uh, at that temperature, the electrons uh, in the gas are uh, moving relativistically and uh, as they move relativistically in, uh, in the magnetic field that's present in the gas, they give off radiation, and that's what we observe. That process is called the synchrotron process. Well, let's talk about uh, the e EHT um, and how that came to be. And um, you know, obviously, it's these telescopes around the world c 
working collectively that helped uh, provide us this image. Can you talk about the, that collaboration uh, since you're such a vital part of it? Yeah, so <coughs> our, our collaboration involves uh, more than 200 scientists from around 40 different countries around the globe. Uh, and uh, these, these eight telescopes with eight different observatories and uh, eight different observatory directors. Uh, and uh, putting these telescopes, which usually spend their time looking at other astronomical objects together and getting them to all point in the same direction for a week at a time, which is how long it took to take these observations, uh, and have them all be able to connect up to the back ends that make this, uh, make this observation possible was a, a huge undertaking. And there were a lot of people involved. Uh, so uh, some of the, the main contributors were, were at uh, MIT in, in Boston and, and Harvard, uh, and also in Europe at the Max Planck Institutes and at Nijmegen, uh, uh, Radboud University in Nijmegen. So how, how does it work? Why, why do we need eight telescopes around the world and uh, to make this happen? How do they talk to each other? Why, what's the significance of them uh, sort of uh, working together? Yeah, so uh, usually when we take a picture, when we think about taking a picture, we, we take our uh, camera out and we snap a picture. And, and that's the way a lot of optical astronomy works uh, still. Uh, the cameras are are bigger and more expensive. They run about $100 million for a research-grade um, optical telescope. Uh, but those telescopes can't reach the resolution necessary to resolve a black hole in the middle of uh, uh, a galaxy. And so one has to resort to other techniques. Uh, and uh, the technique that we used is something called very long baseline interferometry. Uh, so Basically, one measures the evolution of the electric field at the focus of every uh, telescope with very high time resolution and records that on a, a disk drive, hard disk drive, or actually a lot of hard disk drives. There's about uh, four uh, petabytes of data involved in this experiment. Uh, so one measures uh, the signal from the source at each telescope, records it uh, on disk drives, brings those disk drives together at uh, a central location, and then compares the signal from pairs of telescopes. And that allows us to uh, infer uh, aspects of structure in the source. So uh, for those of your uh, listeners who are technologically knowledgeable, this, we're taking a Fourier transform of the brightness of the source on the sky. And every time we take a measurement, we measure one Fourier amplitude of the signal on the sky. Uh, so so the, uh, the observations are taken over the course of uh, an entire day. And as the day progresses, the, uh, the telescopes move with respect to each other uh, as seen from the sky. And so we measure uh, different waves inside the source uh, as the Earth turns. Uh, and so at the end of the day, what we do is compare the signals and software, assemble the waves into a single image of the source. Uh, and that's, that's a process that's, uh, well, it, it, it took uh, more than a year to, to do this, and it's probably the single 
most complicated data reduction task in astronomy. I'm going to back up because I want to come back to that. Uh, how, did, how did you know that where it was, that it was there uh, in the first place? Yeah, so this, this is a pretty famous source. Uh, it's, a, it's a nearby massive galaxy, and uh, the, the, uh, it has this jet in it that I mentioned earlier. So if you, if you take an optical image of the galaxy and, and look very carefully at the very center, you see a little line of emission uh, that looks different from all of the, the stars that have kind of an elliptical distribution around the center of the galaxy. So they're kind of red, and then you see this bright blue line across the, the galaxy. And uh, this is first noticed uh, about 100 years ago by an American astronomer named Heber Curtis. Uh, and people have been trying over the course of the 20th century and early 21st century to figure out what it is, where it comes from, what, what powers it. Uh, and in that interval, people have developed uh, better and better techniques for looking at the center of this galaxy and similar galaxies uh, and going to higher and higher angular resolution. So uh, radio astronomy has been going on here for, um, uh, oh, since the founding of the astronomy department here at University of uh, Illinois. And one of the prime targets of radio astronomers is uh, what we call active galactic nuclei like this one. So uh, uh, galaxies with, with bright spots in the center or jets coming out. And so uh, over the last few decades, people have been able to do that uh, radio imaging at higher and higher frequency. And that gets us to higher and higher angular resolution. Uh, and this is really just the final sort of crowning step in that process of going to higher and higher angular resolution. So uh, about 30 years ago, people were able to make maps of this jet, uh, not in the optical, but in the radio at sort of using sort of classical microwave technology. Uh, and one could trace the, the jet back down to smaller and smaller scale and get closer and closer to the middle of the galaxy. Uh, and that process has continued over the last 30 years, getting closer and closer to the very uh, center of the galaxy. And, uh, uh, and, and now we have an image of where the jet is launched. So you mentioned this last phase took about a year. Can you talk about, um, I guess, number one, all the steps that went into trying to create this image? Because you, you mentioned it took yeah. uh, parts of, of all eight telescopes uh, um, to create this image. But what was the last year like? Uh, talk about the excitement level, first off, sure. when you felt like you were getting close, and uh, what were some of the steps that led um, to, to a final final review, uh, I should say reveal. Yeah, um, so, so it took a long time just to get the data back to uh, the places where it was processed. So we, we had one telescope at the South Pole, uh, and the, the data was recorded there in April of 2017, but didn't come out till November because that's when the first flight from the pole comes out. So the correlation, uh, the comparison of data from pairs of telescopes wasn't completed until uh, early 2018. Uh, and then uh, there was a, a long, somewhat bureaucratic process of trying to be sure that uh, all our software worked for doing the imaging, 
for uh, verifying the software work, for, for validating it on uh, uh, other astronomical sources. Uh, and then uh, in around the summer, I, I think it was May of uh, 2018, there was a, a meeting in Boston that I went to and uh, I, was, I was talking to the, the project director at a, at a party <laughs> and he, he pulled out his laptop and uh, showed me some of the raw data. And I knew immediately that we had a major discovery on our hands. So we didn't have an image at that point, but we had a Fourier transform of the image. So uh, uh, basically just a line plot with a bunch of bumps and wiggles on it. Uh, but for anyone who's been looking at these things for a while, you, know, I, you could immediately tell that the, the black hole in the center of M87 was huge. And, and let me just give a little bit of context on that. Uh, so, so there were measurements made over the last decade of the mass of the black hole. And uh, that's important because the size of the black hole is related to the mass. And one set of measurements gave a, a value of six, uh, 6 billion solar masses. And another set of measurements gave 3 billion solar masses. And we knew that if the, the mass was 6 billion, then we could resolve the black hole. We'd have a nice donut-shaped image. And if the value was 3 billion, we'd just have a little dot, and the whole thing would be a bust. <laughs> and, and so as soon as I saw this raw data, I knew that uh, we were closer to 6 billion than 3 billion, and we had a, a nice discovery on our hands. So uh, you guys had to keep this a little under wraps. Uh, I mean, we had the big reveal uh, a month ago. Um, you know, how tough was it to, to kind of keep this to a small group of people? Uh, it was surprisingly difficult. So I learned all kinds of things about science communication that I, I didn't know before. I, I found out that there's a whole group of bloggers who actually make their living out of trying to you know, get rumors uh, onto the web before the actual announcements are, are made. Uh, and in fact, in, in this project, we've had a lot of press attention from the very beginning. So uh, we've had camera crews at some of our meetings, uh, which is a little disruptive. It's disruptive to work with a camera pointing at you. Most astronomers don't. <laughs> used, we're used to pointing cameras at other places, not having cameras pointed at us. Uh, and, uh, uh, and we've had uh, bloggers present at our meetings and uh, and actually, there's a book, there's a nice book about the, the collaboration called Einstein's Shadow um, that's, that's come out. So we, we knew it was going to be big. Uh, we knew that there would be a lot of interest. We, I think most of the senior people in the collaboration got a lot of email before the big reveal uh, from the press asking, you know, can you talk to us about what's going what's gonna to come out? We were, we were all firmly instructed to say no. Um, and, uh, and, and so there, there was that aspect of keeping things quiet, but I think the more difficult aspect was uh, in not being able to discuss with colleagues what, uh, what we had found. It was really exciting. Uh, I, I have colleagues who work in closely related areas, and uh, we, we just weren't able to talk about it. I feel like we're kind of going backwards here, but uh, talk about the beginning stages. Um, uh, we mentioned at the open that it was your group's analysis that kind of led to, the, to, the, to this theory. Talk about the role that, that your team specifically played. How long is, have 
um, these studies been going on? Sure. So uh, this uh, this theoretical work has to do with an area of astrophysics that we would call black hole accretion theory. It's all about stuff falling into black holes. So the only reason we see black holes is because we see radiation from the gas that's falling in. So it gets really hot and it gives off a lot of light. And in different different black holes, it gives off different kinds of light, sometimes x-rays, sometimes this uh, millimeter radiation that we actually looked at. Um, so so uh, I've spent actually uh, uh, almost since my undergraduate days thinking about aspects of this problem. So I, uh, as an undergraduate, I uh, worked on a black hole accretion problem and then set it aside to go to graduate school and then came back to it um, years later. Uh, here at Illinois, uh, I, uh, I arrived in about, uh, well, I arrived in January of 1999. And, uh, one of the first things I decided to do was set up a project to study gas falling into black holes using numerical methods. And it was something that uh, I thought was possible, that there were indications in the literature that it was possible, but, but no one had really done systematically up until that point. So I'd worked on other things prior to coming here, and uh, I just decided to take a big risk and, and work on this with, um, with some of my students. Uh, and at that time, I had a really uh, outstanding student who uh, was great at uh, computational work. Uh, it's the kind of person that Illinois has a habit of attracting. Uh, and we, we just really hit it off and uh, were able to put together a computational model. Uh, so then uh, uh, that was just the beginning. We didn't know that EHT would be possible then. Uh, we were just sort of working our way up toward understanding other sources that people were observing at the time, completely unresolved. Uh, and then EHT came along. Uh, I got some more students and postdocs, uh, and we were able to put together some of the first numerical models of these, these sources that uh, uh, both showed the, the ring-like structure that other people had predicted uh, and, uh, and that showed us how the sources fluctuate in time and drive jets. So, so that's really been a focus of my career over the last 15 years is understanding how, how these jets, like the one in M87, are, are powered. Uh, we talked a little bit about before the program of the significance of the computational power that exists here at, at Illinois. Can you talk about the significance? Because obviously things from a, a computing standpoint, uh, really taken off, I would say, over the last four or five years, but certainly compared to when you came mm -hmm. to campus in 1999, it's really provided uh, a big resource to be able to, to come from where you were 20 years ago to where you are today. Yeah, so the, the presence of NCSA has been uh, crucial to getting this work done. And I mean, there are some obvious contributions that NCSA makes by having computers available that we can get time on. Uh, and, and actually, um, you know, just to step back for a moment, NCSA was founded by, by Larry Smarr, who was an astronomy uh, professor here. And uh, Larry was motivated in part by work he was doing on black hole accretion with uh, a student named John Hawley, uh, who was a mentor of mine. Uh, uh, in the 1990s, and who's, who's now a, a dean 
at uh, University of Virginia. And uh, uh, from the very beginning, it was clear that you know, astrophysics could play an important role in NCSA and uh, that NCSA could do a lot for, for astrophysics. Okay, so that's the end of the diversion. Now, uh, uh, going back to the present day, I would say that the most important contribution that NCSA and the computational facilities on campus make toward getting this kind of work done is in attracting the kind of people who are capable of doing this work. Uh, so we get unusually competent students in uh, computation, and it's just a small step to take them from where they are when they walk in the door to doing cutting edge computational research. Um, so, so that's something that I, I just couldn't have done at a lot of other uh, institutions. And I hope that University of Illinois will continue to attract that kind of outstanding students. And I, I, I think that, you know, one, one thing that plays a big part in the students' minds uh, is the big iron that's here, like Blue Waters. Uh, uh, and, and, and so there's this connection between having the facilities and, uh, and attracting the people and then getting the, getting the research done. It's interesting that astrophysics w played such a big role in the motivation to create NCSA. Um, talk a little bit about your the, the theory, how the theory evolved, uh, and then how you were be able to connect this theory um, to the EHT project. Um, yeah, so uh, so there are a lot of people who have worked in this in this area and made important contributions. So I don't want to uh, try and claim too much of the limelight here, but I, I think our group has been a pioneer in putting together uh, the most realistic numerical models. So we've tackled uh, some of the physical problems that other people, and algorithmic problems that, that other people uh, wouldn't talk to, uh, sorry, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't deal with. Um, so, so going back a ways, uh, I, I think this, this field starts with work by British theorists in the 1960s and 1970s. So there, there's an astronomer named Martin Rees, who later became Astronomer Royal, who worked on important aspects of this problem. Uh, there's a guy named Roger Blanford, who's now a professor at Stanford, uh, who was able to to it and work out analytically some of the key features of how jets are driven from black holes. And uh, he did that as uh, either a postdoc or a graduate student, I'm not sure which, at, at Cambridge in 1977. And, and I think one of the major results of EHT and all our numerical studies is that we find that Roger's explanation of how jets are powered stands up pretty well. And um, uh, I, I think that's, that's something that uh, we'll be pursuing even more vigorously in the next steps for Event Horizon Telescope. So we hope to be able to see uh, little bright spots in the plasma that circulate around the black hole and be able to tie those to the rotation of the black hole, which is something that uh, Roger Blanford posited was, was central to powering the, the jet. So the idea there, if, uh, if I can focus on that, is that uh, this, this jet in uh, M87 is powered by magnetic braking of the black hole. 
So the idea is the black hole itself is spinning and it's got a huge store of rotational energy like a giant flywheel. Uh, and and the, the, the jet acts by, by tapping into that rotational energy using magnetic field lines that, that pass through the black hole and are dragged around by the black hole, by the black hole space-time. Uh, and uh, uh, so w one thing that, that we've been able to do is take the very idealized analytic models and set them in a more realistic context by uh, running full-up time-dependent models of these accretion flows and seeing the, the energy just come out of the event horizon of the uh, of the black hole mediated by uh, magnetic fields. So is, is it the presence of the jets that really made this uh, particular black hole interesting? Because uh, that's, they're, one they're interesting. that's one of the most interesting okay. things about it, yeah. Uh, but, but even more important from the standpoint of a Venture Horizon telescope is that as far as we know, there are only two black holes on the sky that can be resolved by this Event Horizon Telescope system as it's presently designed. So one of the things that we hope to do in the future is uh, send an antenna into space and use that uh, in, in conjunction with ground-based observatories to get higher resolution. And potentially that would open up more sources to being resolved by Event Horizon Telescope or its successors. Because we know the black holes exist in our galaxy um, but we have not been able to get the res you know, the, the images that we got uh, from M87. Yeah, so, so the, the one other target that can be resolved and is actually probably a little bit bigger on the sky than M87 is uh, our galactic center black hole. It's a lot smaller than M87's black hole. M87's black hole is, is 6 billion solar masses, we know now. Uh, the, the galactic center black hole is about 2,000 times smaller, uh, but it's also about 2,000 times closer. And so the, the upshot when you work out the numbers is that it's just a little bit bigger than, uh, uh, than M87. So we have data on the galactic center, and that's something that we will be um, uh, looking at over the course of the next year, and hopefully you'll be seeing a picture pretty soon. Of, uh, of our own galactic center. When you say solar uh, masses, uh, talk, talk about uh, sure. what, what yeah. that, can you translate that in terms of, uh, you know, uh, a measurement that we might better understand? Yeah, so um, I, I can go up sort of by stages uh, from the, the mass of the Earth. So, so Jupiter's about 300 times more massive than the Earth, and then uh, the Sun is about a thousand times more massive than Jupiter, uh, and then that's that's one solar mass. Okay. Uh, so then we work our way up from there, and one solar mass, uh, just to put it in really quantitative terms, is about two times ten to the thirty-three grams. Uh, so astronomers like to work in, or th uh, theorists like to work in CGS units rather than MKS. So solar masses we're talking about that's comparative to the to the mass of the sun. Exactly, so the mass of the sun. Um, so, so we think that these uh, black holes that live in the center of galaxies are assembled from interstellar gas, but also from stars that fall into the black hole. Uh, and uh, it probably took billions of years to build up the, the billions of stellar masses of uh, black hole in uh, M87. 
you hinted a little bit about what's next. Um, and obviously, when you have a discovery like this, th this is a great moment, but it just kind of leads to the next one. Um, can you can you kind of bring this all uh, to fruition here about what 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 what, what are you guys working on next? Obviously, the project still continues. Yes. Um, uh, as exciting as <laughs> this this was, uh, you know, what are you focusing on next? Okay. Well, let me talk about just a, a few things. So, uh, one, uh, you you may not be surprised to learn it's just organizational. So, running a big project like this is really complicated. And uh, now we're thinking about how to to sort of put it back together after the big reveal and uh, get it working more productively, sort of optimize our, our tools for discovery. Uh, so then in the, the very near term, we're gonna be looking at uh, the Galactic Center, the center of the Milky Way galaxy, which has this uh, four million uh, solar mass uh, black hole, and uh, uh, trying to produce an image of that. Uh, we're also gonna look at uh, polarized light from both the galactic center and from M87. And that may give us a lot of additional information about uh, the gas that surrounds the, the black hole. Uh, then in the slightly longer term, uh, starting in 2020, we'll, we'll have bigger arrays of telescopes. So we're gonna add in a few telescopes to the array. Uh, one, one important new site is uh, the Greenland Telescope, which is at Thule in Greenland. Uh, and has been built by the Taiwanese in collaboration with the Smithsonian Institution. Um, another important site is uh, an array of telescopes called NOEMA that sits up in the Alps uh, near Grenoble in France. Uh, and then uh, we're also gonna add a telescope in Arizona. Uh, and as I understand it, uh, the German Max Planck Society owns a mountain in Namibia that's a good site for a telescope. So in the slightly more distant future, it may be possible to put a, a telescope there. And astrophysics continues to play a big role. I mean, that's the thing that, that always amazes me about physics is that there's still things that we don't know from the very fundamental. So um, as a astrophysicist um, that comes up with the theories, what role will the theory and, and uh, the very fundamental play in this project? Yeah, well, I, I think one of the things we're looking at, which is very fundamental, is uh, uh, whether Einstein's theory is correct. And the new measurements will uh, uh, give us more and more acute tests of that as time goes on. So we need a combination of better understanding of the gas that's producing the light around the black hole uh, and the, the space-time itself. Um, you know, uh, astrophysics is in a fortunate position because there's a lot of new data coming in now. Uh, so uh, physics, and I think physical science in general, probably biological science as well, um, is driven by the availability of new tools to do uh, measurements with new higher precision. Uh, so this is one of those new higher precision measurements that's, that's made possible by a combination of, of uh, new technologies, including just cheaper disk drives. So we had four petabytes of data, which we couldn't have afforded to store 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Uh, and, and now it's a, uh, a fairly small part of the total budget of the project. So um, 
so new techniques, uh, new receivers, new new clocks are really important in this uh, project. Um, new algorithms for analyzing the the data and for doing what we have done, which is uh, build time-dependent uh, numerical models of the, the data. Well, thank you for joining us on the program. Uh, very fascinating. I mean, it was an exciting uh, day, I know, for you, um, and I appreciate that. And before we leave, you had mentioned to me um, all the, the press coverage that uh, it's been amazing where this has been. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, we <laughs> We seem to have made the cover of just about every uh, paper in the world on uh, April 11th, the, the day after the, the announcement. Uh, so we were above the fold in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, and we even made the Daily Illini. Uh, uh, so, so that's really gratifying to see work that you know is, is done in fairly quiet circumstances over in Loomis Lab wind up on the, the front page of uh, the newspapers, but then it's it's sobering to see the things that appear above our story in the papers, like uh, Daily Illini had a, a really uh, a large headline on a study about drinking behavior in uh, college students uh, that, you know, sort of <laughs> appeared right below our, our, <laughs> our image. So, um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's really got a lot of attention, and I hope, you know, that it can accelerate the uh, progress toward learning new things about black holes, learning new things about the universe and uh, about fundamental physics. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And, uh, you know, come back and, and we look forward to following the progress uh, continuing of this project. Thanks, Mike. Charles Gammy has been our guest. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Engineering at Illinois, all rights reserved, we invite you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud by searching Engineering at Illinois. We hope you'll help grow our core of listeners by leaving a favorable rating on iTunes.